You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Phyllis Murphy. Phyllis Murphy was the second youngest of seven girls and three boys, and grew up in Kildare Town. By 1979, all her older siblings were married, and it was just her and her younger brother Patrick left single. Phyllis was described by her sisters as a quiet, sensible, and cautious girl. At 23 years of age, she worked in the Curra knitwear factory, and she'd moved out of the family home where her father was. She rented digs in the nearby village of Rathangan. On the 22nd of December 1979, Phyllis had a busy day. That afternoon, she bought Christmas presents and got her hair done in a new fashionable Afro style, very different from the shoulder-length page boy she had been sporting until that point. At 4pm, Phyllis had visited the home of friends, the Martins in Newbridge. The children in the two families had become close after the death of Phyllis's mother some years before, and Phyllis's rented room was actually in the house of the Martins' grandmother. After her visit there, Phyllis left the Martins and went a few doors down the street to one of her brother's homes, and after that, she headed to her friend Barbara Luker's house. There, Phyllis was making plans for the night. It was her intention to go home and then meet up with Barbara later that evening. Phyllis headed for the bus sometime between half six and twenty to seven. The stop was just a few metres away on the same side of the road, just across from the Dean Hotel on the outskirts of the town. Phyllis was last seen waiting there at the bus stop in the Ballymany area of Newbridge. She was carrying an overnight bag and also a number of packages containing the remainder of her Christmas presents for her nieces and nephews. At the bus stop, she spoke to an older woman, but Phyllis never made it onto the bus. When Phyllis didn't arrive at the family home that night and then missed her appointment with Barbara Luker, her family was immediately worried. It was very unlike her to be late or to stand up a friend. She was a responsible young woman, and this was totally out of character. By the following afternoon, the authorities had been notified that Phyllis was missing. She was described as five foot tall, petite, with brown hair. She was wearing a grey coat and jeans at the time of her disappearance. Quickly, Gardy were satisfied that Phyllis had not caught the bus home. They began to think that perhaps she'd been offered a lift to her destination and something had happened after that or during the course of the ride. But still, this was strange. Phyllis was a cautious and shy young woman. Her friends and family were sure that she would not have taken a lift from a stranger. A large-scale search began over the Christmas period in an effort to locate Phyllis Murphy. Whatever had happened, given that she still hadn't turned up, it was obvious that there was something very, very wrong. On the morning of the 26th of December, a man was out shooting game in an estate near Brannockstown, about 10 miles east of Phyllis's last known location, and he found Phyllis's overnight bag and some of her shopping bags in undergrowth. On Sunday, the 30th of December, a search in the Curra area of Kildare was conducted. 
This is a flat expanse known for both flat racing and an army barracks between Kildare Town and Newbridge. That was where Gardaí were focusing their effort. 300 Gardaí and civilians combed through the area. During the search, boots and gloves determined to have been Phyllis's were discovered. The gloves had in them the 60 pence that Phyllis would have used as her bus fare to Kildare Town the day she went missing. Gardaí were calling on anyone who had seen Phyllis or spoken to her before she disappeared to contact them. The search of the Curra continued on to the next day, Monday the 31st of December. That day, detectives from the investigation section of the Garda Technical Bureau in Dublin, known also as the Murder Squad, were called in to assist in the investigation. This led to the presumption both by the press and searchers that the case was being treated as a suspected murder inquiry. A meat factory owned by the Kildare Chilling Company, which was located only 10 minutes or so from where Phyllis's belongings were discovered, was searched. Six large slurry tanks were drained there. A subaqua club from Nace searched the nearby stretch of the River Liffey. A public dump that was alongside the Curra was also searched, which posed difficulties as the area was covered in thick smoke and filled with rats. The army searched their installations near to the Curra too. Volunteers organised themselves at a New Year's dance on the evening of the 31st and searched an area near to Kilgowan. And Corrigan's Cot at Brannockstown was searched for a second time. The Athgarvan area was also searched on the suggestion of a diviner. But nothing was turned up and the search continued into Tuesday. The following Thursday, there were still no new leads in the search for Phyllis, but nevertheless, it continued. By the first weekend in 1980, the outlook was bleak. Searchers admitted that they were by this stage out searching for a body. But everyone pressed on and there was no scaling back in the efforts to find Phyllis Murphy. The community in Kildare was determined to find Phyllis and return her to her family, no matter what had occurred. Areas of the canal near Newbridge were dived, as well as pools of water at sandpits at Dunlavin. Those sandpits were gone over thoroughly because Gardie had received reports from two women that they had heard screams coming from the area. Farmers living within 20 miles of Newbridge were asked to search their lands, barns, sheds and outbuildings. House-to-house inquiries were conducted in Newbridge and Kildare, and by Sunday the 6th of January, over a thousand people had completed a Garda questionnaire. An attempted attack on a woman in the Brannockstown area was speculated in the press as possibly being linked to Miss Murphy's disappearance. The woman had been walking along the road on her way home, carrying a bucket of water when a car pulled alongside her. The man driving asked if she wanted a lift, but when the woman refused, he jumped out and tore her skirt. The woman then threw the bucket of water over her attacker and went after him with her torch. He fled. The guardee said that there was no reason to think that the two incidents would be related, but they hadn't ruled this out either. On Wednesday the 9th of January, the murder squad called in the ballistics section from Dublin to search various areas using a metal detector in hopes it might provide further clues as to what had happened to Phyllis and indicate where she may be. Despite the lack of new discoveries and leads, the search continued in the face of public outcry. The people of Kildare were frightened. Parents weren't letting teens or younger people out in the night, a move the local guardee seemed to give approval of. On Friday the 18th of January, a further search was undertaken. 
10 Gardaí were assigned to search an area around an electricity plant at Turlock Hill, and they arrived out to the secluded spot at 10am. Two hours into the search, one of them called out, having made a discovery. He had located the remains of a young woman. It was Phyllis Murphy. Her body had been left lying naked within a wooded area at the bottom of a tree, just in from the road, not far from Ballinagee Bridge. The location was about a 35-minute drive from where she had been last seen in Newbridge and in an isolated area of the Dublin Wicklow Mountains. Superintendent Dan Murphy, head of the murder squad, was notified and he travelled to the scene with officers who would protect the area and search for further evidence. Phyllis's body was identified on the scene by her devastated family, and then she was brought to the county hospital in Nace for a post-mortem examination. This was carried out by Dr. John Harbison, the chief state pathologist. It was determined that Phyllis Murphy had been raped and then strangled. Gardie appealed for anyone who had been in the Wicklow Gap area who had seen something suspicious since the 22nd of December to come forward, adding that nothing was too small or insignificant to report. The Gardie continued the searches after the discovery of Phyllis's body, as they were anxious to try and get some indication of what had happened and who was responsible for her murder. They were looking in particular for any trace of her clothing or jewellery, though these searches had to be suspended due to snow over that weekend. Further house-to-house inquiries were undertaken too. The questionnaires would eventually number 22,000 and sit together with a massive dossier on the case. On Sunday the 20th of January, Phyllis's funeral was held in Kildare with over 2,000 mourners arriving to pay their respects to the remaining Murphy family. Michael Murphy Jr. spoke on behalf of the family, thanking those who had partaken in searches and their neighbours and friends who had supported them through such a difficult time. The same night, Gardie took a report from a frightened teenage girl who told them that she had been stopped by a man in a yellow car near her home that evening. Reports from the time said she was accosted and the man had threatened her, saying that he'd come after her if he told anyone about what he'd done or if she said anything about Phyllis Murphy. She was uninjured in the short interaction but was frightened and spent several hours giving Gardie her statement. The following weekend, Sunday the 27th of January, Gardie appealed for information about a Datsun car seen on the road between Hollywood and Turlock Hill, County Wicklow, on the 22nd of December, the day of Phyllis's disappearance. It was one of many cars the police were trying to trace, but this one was thought to have been in the area between 8pm and half nine that night. On Tuesday, the 29th of January, Phyllis's clothes were found about two and a half miles from the spot where Phyllis herself had been discovered. They'd been burned but were readily identifiable as those that Phyllis had been wearing. And after that, despite the huge search that had been mounted and the reams of information that had been gathered, the case went cold. In December of 1980, a year after Phyllis's disappearance and murder, with few real leads reported in the case, 20 new detectives were assigned to a renewed investigation. Gardie were hoping that the one-year anniversary of Phyllis's disappearance 
might jog some people's memories of what they'd done and seen the previous year and bring new leads to the case. On Tuesday the 6th of January 1981, the Irish Times reported that a man was being questioned in relation to Phyllis's death, though he was assisting with the inquiry voluntarily and was not under arrest. He was thought to be a farmer in Kildare who had given a statement in the initial inquiry and had presented himself at Clondalkin Garda Station on the morning of Monday the 5th. But nothing came of this. The file on Phyllis Murphy's murder would lay dormant for nearly 20 years. That was until, in 1998, her file was reopened, along with those other women who had disappeared or been found dead in and around the Dublin and Wicklow Mountains. At the beginning of the summer of 1998, 18-year-old Deirdre Jacobs had disappeared while walking back to her home from a trip to the nearest town, Newbridge, County Kildare. The public outcry regarding the unsolved cases of what's now known as Ireland's Vanishing Triangle was heightened by the fact that in September of 1998, around the time the reinvestigation was announced, a woman living in that area, specifically Tullow in County Carlow, came forward describing an attack on her. The woman, Judith Gayen, who was 24, had just gotten off a bus in Tullow, minutes from her home when a man pulled up alongside her in a red car and tried to tackle her into it. He grabbed her and pulled her towards the vehicle while she struggled and her clothes were torn in the attack, but she managed to free herself. Judith told the Evening Herald that all she could think about at the time was the other women who had gone missing, and if she ended up in this car, she would never be seen again. The man, she said, was between the ages of 25 and 30 of medium height with a quote-unquote fat face. She said he was rough and strong and was angry throughout her ordeal. Operation Trace was officially launched in October of 1998 and was headquartered in Nace Garda Station. Men who had shown a propensity towards serious sexual violence were to be investigated as possible suspects. Gardy admitted that they were looking into cases to see if they might be linked but weren't willing to entertain speculation about whether or not there was a serial killer on the loose. Garda Commissioner Pat Byrne told reporters, I would do anything to get to the bottom of this problem. I don't care how radical the suggestion. He said that he was willing to seek help from abroad and perhaps bring in someone to do a psychological profile. As part of the reinvestigation of the various cases, a number of DNA samples from blood taken in the initial investigation into Phyllis Murphy's kidnapping and murder were sent to a forensic laboratory in England for analysis. Blood samples had been taken from a number of men during that investigation into Phyllis Murphy's death. These samples would be compared to DNA that had been left on Miss Murphy's body during the course of the attack on her, which had been preserved until her discovery due to the freezing weather over Christmas and New Year in 1980. As a result of that testing, a 51-year-old former soldier from Kildare Town, who at the time worked security at a stud farm in the Curra, was arrested by detectives working on the reinvestigations. He was reported by the Irish Times as being married and having five children. Gardee called to his home in Woodside Park in Kildare Town in the early morning of Tuesday the 13th of July 1999 and he was arrested under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act. Near to 9am another man was also arrested with this second man having allegedly provided the 51-year-old with an alibi 20 years before. 
The two had both served in the army together, and both were brought to Nace Station. It was noted that throughout the day, detectives who had worked Phyllis Murphy's case 20 years before were in and out of the regional station. The second man was released without charge on the night of the 13th. But the following day, the 14th of July 1999, the other man appeared at the Nace District Court to be formally charged. The chief superintendent at Nace Garda Station made an announcement to the press that the man was to be charged with the murder of Phyllis Murphy. Chief Superintendent Feely also told the gathered reporters that although the reinvestigation had come on foot of Operation Trace, the case was being treated in isolation. Speaking to Coleman Cassidy of the Irish Times, Barbara, Phyllis's eldest sister, said, quote, It was always at the back of our minds that it was going to happen. You hope and hope, and then you put it in the background. There's even an element of fear that the case could be reopened again, and nothing more would come of it. But now we're glad. No matter what, we would prefer to know the full truth. End quote. The nine remaining Murphy siblings were all very close. One of the brothers was in England, and there was also a brother and sister who had moved to Australia. One other brother had moved up to Dublin, but the rest were all still living in the local area. With the news that there were developments in their sister's case, they all began returning to their home place. Just after 11am on the 14th of July, the man, now named in the press as 51-year-old John Creer, faced the court to be formally charged. He had been greeted on his arrival at the court building by a large group of people who shouted and jeered at him while he was led inside by plainclothes detectives. Creer remained seated throughout the short hearing. He didn't even rise when the district court judge entered. He appeared agitated and sat with his head in his hands throughout. The court was told he had responded not guilty when the charge was put to him at arrest. Creer was remanded in custody and was jostled as he left the courthouse. Gardy believed that after Creer had dropped a friend and former army colleague Peter Rooney to his home in the Maryland estate in Newbridge on the 22nd of December 1980, Creer had seen Phyllis waiting for her bus and offered her a lift as she was laden down with bags. His family and the Murphys had known each other and so Creer wouldn't have been a complete stranger to the young woman. But instead of taking her home, Creer abducted Phyllis and at some point after that, he raped and killed her. In order to try and hide his crime, he dumped Phyllis's body in a secluded area, burnt her clothes elsewhere, and scattered her belongings in yet other isolated spots all around the Kildare-Wicklow border to try and frustrate any search for her. According to the Irish Times, Creer had first come under Garda scrutiny early during the course of the Phyllis Murphy investigation when he filled out one of the Garda questionnaires handed out at the time saying that he had never met Phyllis Murphy. This contradicted information that the Gardaí had from her family. Stephen Ray from the Evening Herald reported that it was even possible that Creer had known Phyllis's father, as he too had been in the army. In any event, Creer had voluntarily made a statement to the Gardaí on the 16th of January, before Phyllis's body was discovered, and subsequently voluntarily gave a blood sample on the 6th of March, 1980, but with no further lines of inquiry and given the state of forensic science at the time, Gardy had hit a dead end. But all of that had changed by the late 1990s. DNA had been used to clear the Gardy's top suspect earlier in 1999. 
Gardy had considered Creer as among the pool of suspects in the case, but he had not been in their top ten. A man who had been arrested early in the investigation came forward after Creer's first court appearance and told Paul Williams, writing for the Sunday World, that for nearly 20 years he had been considered the prime suspect in Phyllis's murder. Mr. Michael Kelly told the paper that Gardy had called to his house recently, where he lived alone, and requested a strand of his hair, which he had agreed to. Michael Kelly said that a cloud of suspicion had followed him ever since the initial investigation in 1980. He hoped that now this cloud might be lifted, given the developments in the case, due to DNA testing. Creer was granted bail at an appeal brought by him to the High Court on Monday the 26th of July, 1999. Conditions were attached, of course, requiring Creer to hand over a £5,000 bond of his own, along with an independent surety or cash lodgement of £10,000. Creer was also to reside at an agreed address, sign on once a week at his local Garda station, and have no contact with witnesses. On October the 7th, 2002, John Creer's trial opened in the Central Criminal Court in Dublin. A jury of six men and six women were selected to sit before Mr. Justice Liam McKechnie. The state was represented by Mr. Michael Durack, senior counsel. Creer pleaded not guilty. The opening statements began the following day, with Mr. Durack outlining how 50 blood samples had been taken from men in the area after Phyllis went missing as part of the initial investigation. These samples had been retained by Gardie in the Technical Bureau. It was described how these samples had been sent to England for analysis in 1998, and how a match had been discovered linking John Creer to Phyllis's rape and murder. Creer's background was described. He was originally from County Tipperary. He'd left school at 14 and joined the army in 1966. In 1979, he'd become a security guard at the Black & Decker factory in Kildare. Creer had been interviewed by Gardie on the 16th of January 1980 in relation to Phyllis Murphy's disappearance. His initial statement was that he had been at work on the night in question. Creer said that he had placed a bet at half three, got to the pub where he stayed until half six, then dropped his friend Peter Rooney home. After that, he told Gardie he'd headed back to the pub for one more and then went home himself to get ready for work. This account was confirmed and accepted by the prosecution, up until half six that evening. After that, it was argued Creer had made up these times to try and cover for his involvement in Phyllis's abduction. After his arrest in 1999, he had repeated his statement to the Gardie, sticking to his earlier story. This initial alibi had been backed up by a co-worker of his, Mr. Patrick Bolger. On Wednesday the 9th of October, Michael Murphy, Phyllis's brother, took the stand. He told the court that he had identified Phyllis's body at Nace General Hospital back in January of 1980. Jared Murphy recalled that Phyllis had visited him in his home the day she disappeared. She'd left some Christmas presents for the kids and said she was calling into others' houses before heading back to their family home. It was a quick visit, with Phyllis saying she didn't have time to sit as she planned on getting the 10 past 7 bus. She had been in great form. The next day, his brother Patrick Murphy had called to the house saying that Phyllis had arranged to meet with Barbara Luker in Kildare the night before, but she hadn't turned up. 
Retired Garda John McManus gave evidence that he was part of a team of 10 searching the Turlock Hill area for Phyllis on the 18th of January 1980. Mr. McManus recalled that there had been five officers tasked to search on either side of the road. They began their search at a quarter to 10 at the power station and intended to search an area of 50 yards out from either side of the road as they made their way down the hill. Mr. McManus said he'd spotted the body from the road while he stood looking into the trees near to Ballinagee Bridge and had alerted his superiors. Phyllis's body was partially covered with twigs and leaves, but was remarkably well-preserved due to the bitterly cold weather in the previous weeks. McManus further told the court that in recent years he'd also been tasked to drive various routes, including from Creer's friend Mr Rooney's house to the Keaton Hotel in Newbridge and then back to Colgan's Cut. That journey had taken him 14 minutes. A longer journey from the Black & Decker factory to Turlock Hill with various stop-offs in the Curra had taken an hour and 35 minutes, he said. Retired Detective Sergeant Joseph Higgins gave evidence that he had interviewed a number of people during the initial investigation into Phyllis's killing. He and a colleague had taken a statement from John Creer on the 16th of January. Creer said in the statement that he didn't know Phyllis Murphy, but he did know her father and two of her sisters, Patricia and Claire. He'd known Patricia because she worked in a jet petrol station in Kildare while he and his family were living in a caravan on the Dublin Road. At the time, Higgins had also taken a statement from publican Mr. Brian O'Leary, in which O'Leary stated that Mr. Creer had been in his pub the night Phyllis went missing. He'd won a turkey and had also bought himself a pint while there, between 10 and 11 that night. On Thursday, the 10th of October 2002, Dr. John Harbison appeared in court to give details of the post-mortem examination he'd performed over 20 years previous on Phyllis Murphy's recovered remains. She had had defensive injuries on her arms and wrists. Harbison noted marks on Phyllis's face that were consistent with a kick to the head by a booted foot, like someone wearing a Doc Martin or similar shoe. The chief state pathologist also observed that Phyllis had injuries and bruises to her upper thighs and in her pelvic region, which were consistent with rape. Harbison concluded that marks on Miss Murphy's neck were indicative of manual strangulation and that was recorded as her cause of death, though in an attempt to soften this information for her family, Dr. Harbison said that he thought it was likely she had in fact died from vagal inhibition, where pressure exerted on the vagal nerve in the neck caused a sudden and fatal stop to Phyllis's heart. There were prominent bruises to the left side of her neck which indicated that this might be the case. Then the trial stopped for four days of legal argument. All the jury were told when they returned was that certain matters had arisen and on foot of that, certain rulings had been made. Presumably those arguments had related to the key evidence which was to follow. The jury then heard that DNA evidence in the form of blood and semen samples had been kept by Gardee and had been retained in an evidence locker in two Garda stations for many years. The semen had been gathered on swabs taken during Miss Murphy's post-mortem. On Friday the 18th of October, the evidence of a number of Gardaí involved in the renewed investigation was heard. Detective Sergeant Brennan McArdle from the Ballistics Section told the court that he had travelled to a forensic laboratory in Abington, England, and delivered DNA samples to them. 
he had brought nine swabs taken from Phyllis Murphy's body in March, and then in September, he delivered a number of stain cards containing blood samples from men taken at the time of her killing. These stain cards were analysed in two batches, with the first showing no results and the second indicating a match. In January of 1998, Detective Sergeant McArdle learned the results of this new analysis, which showed a match between the sample taken from Miss Murphy's body and the blood sample of John Creer. Detective Garda Mark Carroll told the court that he arrested Creer on the morning of July 13, 1999, on foot of those results in relation to the murder. Further blood samples were taken from him at that point to confirm the previous lab results. A number of interviews were conducted with the accused, where the DNA evidence was put to him. Creer said that he would not dispute the evidence presented to him, but he said he had no idea how his semen came to be on Phyllis Murphy's body and maintained that he had nothing to do with her death. Creer also had the revised statement made by his work colleague, Mr. Bolger, put to him, which he also said he could not account for. He maintained his innocence despite Gardie telling him that the results of the DNA testing provided extremely strong support for the conclusion that John Creer had been involved in Phyllis's murder. The contents of the four statements made while Creer was interviewed by police on the 13th were entered into evidence. The following Monday, the forensic scientists who conducted the testing gave evidence. Dr. Matthew Greenhall, who worked in the Forensic Alliance Lab in Abington in the UK, said that the sample attributed to John Creer matched one of the swabs from the victim, and it was his opinion that the likelihood of this DNA profile matching anyone else in Britain was 1 in 17 million. It was a cautious estimate, he said, because the lab did not have an Irish database. Dr. Maureen Smith of the State Forensic Laboratory told the court that she too had performed testing on the samples in 1999. First, Dr. Smith explained that the samples had been sent to the UK in 1998 because there were more advanced techniques in use there than there were within her lab at the time. Then she explained that she had tested the samples twice herself. Both yielded results that confirmed the information that had come from the lab in Abington, In 1999, there was a match that she said had a chance of 1 in 76 million of matching someone else in the Irish population. In 2000, a more advanced test was carried out and confirmed this, with a 1 in 1 billion chance of the same profile being found randomly in the population. On Wednesday the 23rd, the 12th day of the trial, Mr. Patrick Bolger gave his revised account to the court of what had occurred on the 22nd of December, 1979. That day, he said he and his family had done some Christmas shopping in Newbridge and then stopped for dinner at McWay's pub. He'd seen John Creer there. The two men worked together at the Black & Decker factory as security guards for provincial security. At around 20 to 7, he'd left, gone home, had tea and changed into his uniform. Mr. Bolger said he'd arrived at work at around 8pm and Mr. Creer had turned up around 40 minutes later. When Creer entered the security hut, He told Mr. Bolger that there was something wrong with his car, that the battery had fallen out of it when he'd hit a bump in the road. After that, Creer told him he was headed off to O'Leary's pub to play darts and that he'd be back later. Bolger said Creer did come back at about 20 to 11 that night. Mr. Bolger agreed with the prosecution counsel that this was not the account he'd given when first interviewed by Gardie back in 1980. He admitted that he'd lied. 
Bulger said he hadn't wanted his friend to lose his job with Provincial and said that Creer had asked him to cover for him for the absence from work that night. Another man, John Dempsey, also told the court of his interaction with Mr. Creer in December of 1979. Mr. Dempsey owned a garage in Fairview, Kildare at the time, and also bought and sold cars. That month, Creer had traded in a Hillman Hunter car to him and bought a Datsun. Dempsey further told the court that the accused had asked him to tell people that Creer had been at his place of business at a particular time and date, but Dempsey did not agree to do that for him. It hadn't been true. The following day, Sean Phelan, another former soldier and employee of provincial security, who had worked alongside Creer at the time of Miss Murphy's disappearance, gave evidence to the court. Mr. Phelan admitted that he too had lied to Gardee during the initial investigation. He'd told police that Creer had arrived on site at Black and Decker at 8pm and that he'd seen him. But this wasn't the case. Mr. Phelan had left just after 8, but Creer hadn't been there. Phelan said he told this story to the police to save his own job because he wasn't supposed to leave his position until the next shift had arrived. Phelan also recalled that in the days following Phyllis Murphy's disappearance, Creer had thoroughly cleaned the boot of his car while the two of them worked a day shift together at the factory premises. Mr. Phelan described how Creer had told them his wife had spilled milk or cream in the back of the car and the smell was terrible, so he'd pulled the car up to the security hut, boiled the kettle and began to wash out the back of the car with a mop and bucket. It had struck Phelan as odd because the factory was very quiet and Creer could have perhaps pulled the car closer up to where there was hot water available. Mr. Phelan said, quote, It struck me as very odd. Given the quietness of the day, he could have parked his car close to the hot water and the cleaning material. I can't remember how long it took, but to me, it was an inordinate length of time to spend cleaning a car, end quote. That day, another of Phyllis's sisters, Martina, told the court that she, another sister, Brida, and Phyllis used to babysit for the careers when they were teens. When on the stand, the youngest Murphy brother, Patrick, could not recall to the court whether Phyllis had ever babysat for the family, but he did say he recalled his older sister Claire and her husband being friends with Creer, and that Creer had driven Claire to the Coombe Hospital for appointments when she'd been pregnant. On Tuesday, the 29th of October, John Creer took the stand in his defence. He told the court that there was no way that he was a match for the samples taken from Miss Murphy's body. He objected to evidence that had been heard that his initial blood sample had been taken on the 6th of March, 1980, saying instead that it had been taken in early February. The implication being that there had been some sort of mix-up with the samples. Creer said that he'd known Phyllis to see, but he did not know her personally and did not know her to speak to. He denied that any of the Murphy girls had babysat for him. He said that on the day of Phyllis's disappearance, he'd arrived at work a few minutes after eight and left there at about 20 to 10 to head to O'Leary's pub, both to play darts and to collect a turkey that he'd won. He left there no later than half 11 to return to work. Creer was unable to give the names of any of the other men he'd seen at the pub that night, saying he'd tried to remember even one of them, but he couldn't. When asked to account for why it might be that Mr. Bulger had now, so many years later, changed his story and said that his initial statement to the Gardaí had been a lie, 
Creer said that Bulger had made up this new story. The accused said, quote, It took a long time for him to invent it. I couldn't give an explanation as to why he did. End quote. In relation to the earlier testimony of garage owner John Dempsey, Creer said it was Dempsey who had offered to lie to police, and Creer had turned him down. Creer said that Mr. Dempsey had sent for him and told him that Gardee were making inquiries about Creer's car. Dempsey then offered to make a record of having the car in for service on the evening of the 22nd, but Creer had said there was no need. Regarding Mr. Dempsey's offer alleged by him, he said, quote, unbelievable but true, end quote. He said he'd thought it strange at the time and thought that maybe Dempsey had been put up to it to try and catch him out. Creer also admitted that he had washed out the boot of his car a number of times around Christmas 1979. He recounted the story of having spilt milk in the boot and said he wasn't able to get the smell out of it, so he'd cleaned it multiple times. Helen Bruce, writing for the Irish Independent, described Creer on the stand. She said he appeared extremely reluctant to speak and was barely audible as he hunched over the microphone in the courtroom. He appeared uncomfortable as he answered the questions for the barristers and irritation had flashed across him as he was cross-examined in particular. After that, Creer's wife Carmel took the stand. She too said that her husband had not given a blood sample on the 6th of March as the Gardaí had recorded in their investigation file. She was adamant on this point and said she knew this, quote, for a fact, end quote. The Creers both said that they knew the date of the blood sample being taken was wrong because Creer's wife had been pregnant when it was taken and she'd had her fourth child on the 16th of February. Mrs. Creer also gave an account of what she remembered of her husband's movements on the night of the 22nd. She said that John Creer had returned home at about half six and left for work just before 8pm. He hadn't had time for dinner that night. That was the last of the evidence in the case. Closing speeches followed after. Mr. Michael Durack for the DPP asked the jury to carefully consider the evidence of Dr. Smith that had been presented in relation to the DNA and its testing. This scientific analysis was internationally recognised as reliable. Durack also asked them to consider what it was that Mr. Dempsey and Mr. Bulger possibly had to gain from lying to the Gardaí and the court 22 years on in relation to what they had seen Mr. Creer do around the time of Miss Murphy's disappearance and killing. In closing, Mr. Roger Sweepman, senior counsel for the defendant, told the jury that the evidence offered by Creer's former colleagues was unreliable and could not be relied upon as evidence that his client had done anything wrong. He also said that given the amount of time that had passed between the taking of samples and their testing, the DNA evidence could not be solely relied upon to convict Mr. Creer. The risk in convicting his client based on this DNA was too high, he argued. The prosecution evidence was inconsistent, he said, and there were huge gaps in the case. Mr Justice Liam McKechnie gave the summing up and said that the jury must resolve the major conflict of evidence between what had been presented by Mr Creer's defence and what his former work colleagues were now saying. The judge also said that if the jury accepted the DNA evidence, they were still required to consider whether, on that basis, the prosecution had proved their case against the defendant beyond a reasonable doubt. 
After closing arguments and the instructions were given, the jury retired to begin their deliberations. After two hours, they were sent to a hotel to spend the night. The next day, after a total of eight hours' deliberation, the jury returned with a verdict on Thursday evening, the 31st of October. They'd found John Creer guilty of the murder of Phyllis Murphy in Kildare 22 years before. Mr Justice McKechnie handed down the mandatory life sentence and refused leave to appeal. As the sentence was handed down, one of Creer's daughters, sitting in the back of the court, was heard to cry out, Oh Jesus! Mrs Creer was helped from the court by her two sons and three daughters. Immediately behind came Creer himself, handcuffed and led by Gardie towards the vehicle that would transport him to prison. As he had done at all previous court hearings, he covered his face. A woman in the crowd jeered at him, calling him a coward, and one of Creer's sons rushed her, yelling obscenities. Creer's family had stood by him and believed strongly in their father's innocence. After Creer's conviction, Jared Murphy told the press, quote, There's no way 12 people can disagree with DNA, end quote. He went on to express sympathy for Creer's family, saying, quote, it must be very hard on them, end quote. As it turned out, the Creer family had lived only across the road from one of Phyllis's sisters. They'd been neighbours for years. In the wake of the guilty verdict, the public and press turned once more to consider it within the context of the larger Garda investigation of Operation Trace. People wondered if John Creer might be responsible for some of the other abductions and unsolved murders that had happened in the same region. Detective Inspector Brendan McArdle, who had spearheaded having the DNA samples tested in Phyllis Murphy's case, told newspapers, quote, I don't believe he did it once and then stopped, end quote. In the weeks following his conviction, Reports emerged alleging that Creer had also been the main suspect in a number of violent sexual assaults. Stephen Ray reported for the Evening Herald that Creer was suspected of having raped a woman in the Curra camp while he was in the army, and that he'd been identified by the victim, but she'd been too frightened to press charges. Creer was also reported as being chief suspect in an incident in 1972 where a woman was raped at a dance in the artillery officer's mess at the military barracks. Creer had been DJing that night and later a woman was attacked. Her screams alerted others on site and her attacker jumped out a window to escape, landing on the roof of a car below. Creer was noted as having a limp after the incident. Gardie also confirmed to the Evening Herald that they were going to reinvestigate the unsolved murder of Kathleen Farrell, which had also occurred in 1972, where she'd been found raped and murdered on the Curra. She'd been abducted as she cycled home near Blackmiller Hill in Kildare Town. It also emerged that, during the investigation into Phyllis Murphy's disappearance in 1980, Gardie were given information that Creer was alleged to have abused a number of young girls. Three statements outlining these allegations were taken as a result of hearing the stories during house-to-house inquiries. Creer was then separately questioned regarding these allegations, but no charges were brought in the matter. According to Rita O'Reilly, writing for the Sunday Independent in 2002, notes from senior Garda at the time recorded that members of the victim's family did not want to pursue the matter at that time due to the ill health of another person involved. Creer was alleged to have begun abusing one girl at the age of 10, which continued for a number of years. 
Creer, when asked about the allegations in 1999, denied them outright. He said that the younger of the girls was a born liar and had come on to him, and so admitted that there may have been some inappropriate sexual contact. But Creer said the girl was trying to get out of being caught for a theft and that she had been the instigator of the situation. This wasn't anything like the story that the girl had told. Another alleged victim said Creer had attempted to attack her in her own home, but she'd grabbed a knife and threatened him with it. Yet another said she had been abused a number of times by Creer and alleged that, at least on one occasion, she was babysitting at his family home and she'd woken up to him touching her. These allegations were not withdrawn and the people involved confirmed to Rita O'Reilly that they stood by them when her report was published after Creer's murder trial. And so, one of the mysteries of the unsolved murders in the mountains was solved. But so many more remain. Annie McCarrick, Jojo Dollard, Fiona Pender and Deirdre Jacob, among others, disappeared in that area without a trace. No connection between any of them and John Creer has ever been reported. It's startling to think that there were two men, possibly more, snatching women off the street in this part of Leinster over a relatively short period of time. A memorial to Phyllis Murphy now stands where she was found, near Turlock Hill in County Wicklow. Her family had kept her memory alive throughout the years before Phyllis got justice, hoping for closure and peace. Today they can remember Phyllis as their loving sister, rather than one name on an increasingly long list of victims. And they think of her, rather than the man who took her away. Phyllis's sister Barbara spoke to News Talk Radio last year on the 40th anniversary of Phyllis's death. She told Susan Kyo on News Talk Breakfast, quote, We're not going to let bitterness get us, because then we'd be suffering. It was enough that Phyllis suffered. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating, or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favorite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at MensReaPod, or you can send an email to MensReaPod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Tasha Fisher, Brooke Browning-Lima, Amanda Mary, No Way No How, KJ, Sinead Finnegan, Elizabeth Meacham, who's upped her pledge, and Louis Parmenter, my old boss. Thanks, Louis. And thanks to all of you. There are bonus episodes as well as ad-free episodes and mens rea goodies on offer, so please do check them out at patreon.com forward slash mens rea pod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Head to payoff.com forward slash mens rea to get started on the road to managing your debt and get an extra three months of secure and private internet browsing for free with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com forward slash mens. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out. Our theme music is Quinn's Song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.
in which O'Leary said, in which O'Leary said, in which O'Leary. Nine one one. Hey, listen, my girlfriend. I think she just shot herself. Ma'am, I need you to calm down. Listen to me, sir. Listen, hang on. Okay, let me tell you the truth. I work with y'all. Get someone here now. This is Jeremy Banks. His girlfriend, Michelle O'Connell, her death was officially ruled a suicide, but not everyone believes the sheriff's conclusion. Then, a private citizen named Eli Washtock began investigating her case. But before he could finish, he was murdered. We're picking up where Eli Washtock left off. From the creators of Twisted and Pretend Podcast, this is Criminal Conduct, Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. Download Criminal Conduct wherever you listen to podcasts.